love when it strikes is almost sort of like a black hole. Not a bad black hole, but a, a hole in that texture that just something sinks in and really grabs you. You know love when you're in it. There is no mistake you get. You should never take love for granted. I think about love as a kind of day-to-day -day practice, that you love by caring for someone. And it's through the caring and attending to someone that your love grows. I don't think that love can be defined. I think that each love has its own definition. And the last thing I was just going to say is the world needs more of it. So it's good that you're doing this podcast. Hi, I'm Natasha Giliberti. Welcome to MoMA's Magazine Podcast. Today we're talking about love. We asked our colleagues to share their favorite love-related artworks or a story about an artistic relationship that fueled unexpected creativity. Here we deliver six modern art valentines and a contemporary love story sparked and rekindled at the museum. As we discovered in the process of making this podcast, love can be complicated messy and inspiring, and it has shaped the history of art more than we realized. Chapter 1, Love and Friendship. I'm Roxana Markoch, senior curator in the Robert Menschel Department of Photography at the Museum of Modern Art. Robert Maplethorpe was a photographer. Patti Smith is a poet and musician. They both arrived in New York. They met in a bookstore in the summer of 1967. They were both of them 21 years old, and they became lovers. They were so extremely poor. They were so extremely young and they wanted so much to succeed. And so they were super influential in each other's lives and in that creative beginning. But Maplethorpe was gay, so he was struggling with his own sexuality. So the relationship with Patty ended, but ended just on a sexual level because she was so instrumental into who he became, you know, how he picked up photography. Maplethorpe took many pictures of Patti Smith. She, she was one of his most frequent subjects. And this is the famous uh, cover photograph for Smith's first album. It has a title, Horses, which came out in 1975. And the picture was shot in a Greenwich Village apartment. It shows a very confident, almost defiant, and at the same time, so vulnerable, Patti Smith. She's thin, she's androgynous, she wears a white shirt, and um, she holds a black jacket, which is slung across her shoulder, uh, staring straight down into the camera. It was him who gave her the confidence that what she was doing was great and she should pursue her own dream. The day that Maplethorpe died in 1989, actually Patty promised him that she would write their story. And it took her 20 years uh, to write it, but she kept her promise. And in 2010, she immortalized the couple's bond in uh, her book, which is called Just Kids. And maybe I would read one passage from Kids. It recounts the couple's stroll across the Bohemian Red District of 42nd Street, 
pursuing sort of their dream to break through as artists. We hit the newspaper backstalls, stocked with greasy pulp novels and pin-up magazines. I scored a copy of the Ace Double Novel edition of Junkie by William Burroughs under his pseudonym, William Lee, which I never resold. Robert found a few loose pages from a portfolio of sketches of Aryan boys in motorcycle caps by Tom of Finland. For just a couple of dollars, we both got lucky. We headed home, holding hands. For a moment, I dropped back to watch him walk. His sailor's gait always touched me. I knew one day I would stop and he would keep on going. But until then, nothing could tear us apart." Unquote. My name is Paul Fiore, and I'm a painter. I'm Julia Fiore, and I work at MoMA. I'm a digital marketing manager. And if it weren't for MoMA, I don't know if we'd be here today. Both being married and working here is kind of true. crazy. This was about a week before we both graduated from college. A mutual friend came into town for a visit and invited both of us and a few other people he knew in New York to go to the MoMA to see the Sigmar Polk show. We met up and we saw this show. And Paul barely spoke to me. We barely spoke. He was kind of preoccupied with some other friends of his <laughs> that were there. The truth is that I thought she was really cute, and I liked her, but I was nervous, and I didn't know what to say to her because just meeting her, and we're with these other people, so I just, like, stuck with my friends, which was stupid. <laughs> and there was this moment where we stopped in front of Picasso's La Demoiselle d'Avignon, and I was really, uh, how would you call it, bullheaded or... <laughs> strongly opinionated without a lot of insight at the time. So I said, you know, I appreciate its importance to art history, but I wouldn't hang it on my wall. Why and and I were like talking about how great this piece was. And then she like comes in from, from behind with that line. And at first I was like, this is crazy. Like she's insane. And then I thought, but that's like a radical take that like sometimes I would have towards a painting. Like that kind of like turned me on to her. And I, and I was like, that's kind of cool. When we went to say goodbye, and she... Oh, this is a matter of dispute, contention. Yeah, she refuses this. But um, when we were saying goodbye, she gave me a hug. And then as we were, like, separating, she did, like, a hand linger. Like, she, like... He says I lingered my hand. I do not recall She, like, did this, and I was like, oh, that's a sign. Like, she, she likes me. After that date, I, like, went on Facebook and I, like, found her. <laughs> and I messaged her. I said, you know, like, I'm, I'm done with school, but I would really love to, like, take you out. I remember I was in an internship and all the other women in the office were absolutely floored that someone would ask out on a date rather than some kind of hookup. So then we kind of just had, like, a summer fling. Like, we both got out, out of school. We were figuring out our jobs, trying to figure out how to navigate the post-school life. We dated for like four or five months, but it really wasn't serious. Neither of us were particularly committed to the other one, and we were, yeah, we both kind of had one foot out the door focusing on our lives. I decided I'm going to move back to my dad's house to work to get prepared to apply for grad schools. This is in rural Pennsylvania, so he was fully <laughs> leaving the I city. I was, like, leaving the city, and I was, like, sad to say goodbye to her, but at the same time, I felt like, well, you know, this isn't really going anywhere, and I want to focus on this. So, <laughs> And I, I was relieved because I had wanted to break up. <laughs> and I was like, great, you're moving, and now we no hard feelings. Yeah. 
Chapter 2, Love and Collaboration. My name is Evangelos Kotschioris. I'm an architectural historian and a curatorial assistant in the Department of Architecture and Design here at MoMA. We're here to talk about uh, Ray and Charles Eames and their love story. Funnily enough, MoMA is a bit to blame for their encounter. In 1940, MoMA hosted this exhibition titled Organic Design in Home Furnishings. And Charles Eames, who was at the time at the Cranbrook Academy of Art in Michigan, was working with his best friend, Eros Arnen, on this prototype for an affordable chair that he wanted to submit to this competition. And they were very good at tinkering and playing and making prototypes, but um, they needed somebody to take over the graphic design of their boards for the submission to the competition. And at the time, uh, Charles happened to meet Ray Kaiser, who was an artist and a painter and studying art at the academy as well. So they became close and they started their first collaboration. They won the first prize at the competition at MoMA. The full credit, of course, went to Charles Eames and Eros Arden. Interestingly enough, at the time, Charles was actually married to uh, his first wife, Catherine, and they already had a daughter named Lucia. So it wasn't that easy to just be a couple right away. So I guess, you know, collaborating creatively would have been one way of um, spending time together, and that might have actually brought them even closer in life as well. They get married the year after. Charles breaks up with his first wife. Dear Miss Kaiser, I am 34, almost years old, single, again, and broke. I love you very much and would like to marry very, very soon. I cannot promise to support us very well, but if given the chance, I will sure in hell try. Asterisk, soon means very soon. What is the size of this finger? Question mark. Love, XXXXXXX, Charlie. (laughs) <laughs> so, I mean, the funny thing is that even the, 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 the kind of uh, marriage proposal letter includes a little sketch by him with the um, raised hand and a wedding ring. And he's really interested in the dimensioning of this designed artifact, you know. So it's like procuring uh, design information for the design of their life in a way. So one of the most famous photographs they have together is the two of them on a motorcycle and it's interesting that Charles is at the back of the motorcycle like leading, letting Ray lead the way in many ways. They would wear masks uh, of animals to create you know funny poses together they would make Christmas photographs holding ornaments and you know every other modern architect of the period is like completely mortified of being portrayed in an unserious way and here there were these two of them being much more playful they've been categorized as charles being the architect and ray being a, a traditionally uh, trained painter but they had such a long career together and so many different works that they worked in tandem all the time the more time you spend with somebody, the more you become one person. Mm. So th- th- that's why it's impossible to disentangle them. In the end, it's the, the synthesis of the two that made the work so impactful. They died on the same day, August 21st, 
uh, with 10 years uh, apart. I mean, it's just impossible to disregard that uh, coincidence in a way. For these three months when you were away, we had absolutely no communication of any kind. I missed your birthday. Even like my I, birthday passed, he didn't text me nothing. We didn't talk at all. We didn't talk at all. <laughs> and at the time, I was working for Nicole Eisenman, and she was in that Forever Now show. So several months go by, and I decided that I want to go see this show on just a ran on like a random day. And I'm walking through, and I like turn the corner to go into the last gallery room, and lo and behold, she's just standing there. And I see her, and I'm and I'm like, oh my god! Like, my my heart drops. And the first thought was, she's gonna hate me because I haven't talked to her, I I haven't called her. I kind of just left the city. But then she like looks up, and her face brightens up, and she like walks over towards me, and we start talking. And and in retrospect, we both talked about how like there was a spark there that second time of this like chance encounter. So we agreed to go out on a date the following week. And in that week's time, we literally texted and talked the entire time, which we had never done in the first phase. We just like couldn't get enough, and we were finding like all these things that we had in common that we just never talked about before. So it, it kind of just showed us like you really need to like give someone a chance if you want to give each other a chance. Chapter three: Love and Time. I'm Stuart Comer. I'm the chief curator of media and performance here at the Museum of Modern Art. Untitled Perfect Lovers by Felix Gonzalez-Torres was made in 1988, the year that Felix's partner Ross was diagnosed with AIDS. It is very simply two ready-made clocks that you could buy at any hardware store placed adjacent to one another so that they're just touching. They are initially set to the same time when the work is installed. Over the course of the duration of an exhibition of the work, the two clocks eventually fall out of sync so that the times are slightly different from one another. So this is a drawing that effectively maps out the logic of Untitled Perfect Lovers, and it states, Lovers, 1988. Don't be afraid of the clocks. They are our time. Time has been so generous to us. We imprinted this with the sweet taste of victory, we conquered fate by meeting at a certain time in a certain space. We are a product of the time. Therefore, we give back credit where it is due, time. We are synchronized now and forever. I love you. He spoke about a certain time in a certain space. He felt lucky to have been given the opportunity to live at this time in this moment and to have met Ross and had to come to grips with the fact that it was a finite situation. So Ross died in 1991, and Felix didn't die from the virus until 1996. So it was roughly five years later, which is a long time to watch your entire generation, all of your peers, and the person you love most in your life die from this epidemic. And the degree to which the clocks can be seen as very hopeful or also as a kind of countdown to one's own demise, I think love does have a lot to do with time and some people are lucky enough to enjoy love for a very long time and some never find it uh, but i do think this piece somehow really frames um, the nature of almost all relationships on some level chapter four love and change i'm leah dickerman 
I'm the Director of Editorial and Content Strategy here at MoMA. Jacob Lawrence and Gwen Knight came from very different backgrounds. She was born in the Caribbean, in Barbados. She was college educated, or at least had a few years of college, until the Great Depression came along and she ended up going back to New York. But Jacob Lawrence was the child of, a, of migrants from the South. His mother was from Virginia. His father was from South Carolina. He didn't have any formal artistic training, and he didn't finish high school. But they both found themselves in Harlem, and that, I think, reflects the dual streams of migration that are coming into Harlem from the Caribbean and from the South that together built Harlem into this cultural capital, what Elaine Locke, the critic, called the race capital. And they found themselves more specifically in a workshop that was run or hosted by a great artist, underrecognized herself, named Augusta Savage. And Lawrence described her as nationalistic, and what he meant was that she was a black nationalist before her time. And she put time and care in mentoring black talent. There's love there, too. And in that context, Jacob Lawrence met Gwen Knight. They both were students, and they became close immediately. And so when he got a grant to start working on the Migration Series project, she was by his side. She was so very young, it's almost hard to imagine now. He was only 23 years old. But he wanted to create a new type of history painting that captured the fullness of this collective experience of black Americans to, as Lawrence would say, tell about this great epic that's happening in America. And the great epic was the migration of thousands of black Americans from the South to the North in the years after World War I. And when he finished, almost as soon as he finished, they got married um, and they went down to New Orleans together. Lawrence himself had never seen the South. He had heard about it from friends and relatives and his mother, and he could taste the tastes of the South on the streets of Harlem or hear the sounds of the South, but he'd never been there himself. So after finishing the migration series, he and Gwen Knight go together to the South for the first time. And meanwhile, his work was shown in New York. Some of the work was published in Fortune magazine, and that made him a national reputation when that was almost inconceivable for such a young artist, especially such a young black artist. And he became famous, really famous. He was very ambivalent about his fame. He felt like it pulled him away from his neighborhood and his community. And I got the sense that in that moment afterwards that she served as a kind of protector, a buffer from the world and everything that the world wanted from him. And she was a great artist herself, but as he would have said, it was difficult to be a black artist and it was doubly difficult if you are a black woman artist. But when you hear her talk about it, she seems to have felt that her life with Jacob Lawrence made it possible for her to work with freedom and without concern for what the rest of the world wanted from her. I wonder, without really knowing, how much that ability for him to tell such an extraordinary story at such a young age has to do with the kind of conversation and dialogue that he found with Gwen Knight. 
you wonder, or I will have wondered, if he didn't become the artist that he became in that moment in his conversation with her. It, the timing did feel amazing. It did feel like a magical New York City moment, just the way that we both kind of picked our heads up and happened to be looking at each other right in the eyes. And I don't know, I think neither of us realized how much we'd missed the other. Paul came back into the city and we had this really amazing romantic date at a restaurant in Brooklyn. And then after the dinner was over, we were kind of like, okay, what do we do now? We were looking up things to do on our phone in New York because it was kind of late. And it turned out MoMA happened to be open late that night for a special last chance viewing of the Matisse cutout show. All of a sudden we were at MoMA again, but this time with this kind of intense connection behind us and we were walking through the galleries, kind of arm in arm. <laughs> we like spotted this couple who was probably, I don't know, in their like 70s or 80s and they were kind of like dressed the same and they were like holding each other's arms and they were going through the galleries and like point at, and like pointing to their favorite works and stuff. And I remember Julia joked at the time like, oh, that could be us. I'm pretty sure I heard overheard them saying that one of them was an artist and the other was a writer. Oh, that's what, yeah. yeah. And I felt like that could be us. this is our future. Yeah. <laughs> a few years later, we're married. Things moved really quickly and just felt really right. And we have an anniversary, I guess, but we really like to celebrate February 8th, which is when we went to the Matisse show as the kind of rebirth of our relationship, <laughs> the real start of our relationship. Yeah. And yeah, fate day. Chapter five, love and legacy. So my name is Anne Umland. I'm a senior curator in the Department of Painting and Sculpture at the Museum of Modern Art. Sophie Teuber was born in 1889 in Davos, Switzerland. She studied at several progressive interdisciplinary applied arts schools in Munich and in Hamburg, Germany. And in 1914, she moved back to Switzerland and specifically to Zurich where she set out to make a career for herself as an applied artist and as an applied arts school professor. Hans Arp is a different story. He's an artist and a poet and he's born in 1886 in Strasbourg. And around 1914, he moves to Zurich in order to escape being drafted into the German army because that is the year that World War I breaks out. Zurich was a neutral haven, and that was where the Dada movement, famous irreverent, anti-rational movement was born. Everything we know about them as a couple comes from Arp's writings. So in other words, the love story of Sophie Teuber and of Hans Arp is very much narrated by a man in the years after Sophie Teuber Arp died in an untimely fashion in 1943. So there, goodness, we've like leaped ahead of time and I haven't even told no. you how they met. Yeah. But so they met in 1915, according to Arp, at an exhibition, a group exhibition at the Gallery Tanner in Zurich. So here, let's see what he says. May I do this? Yeah. In the motley crowd of people that I have met throughout my life, Sophie Teuber was the most graceful and the most serene. The exhibit that took place in the Tanner Gallery in Zurich in November 1915 turned out to be the most important event of my life. It was there that I first met Sophie Teuber. I 
the most important event of my life. What could get better than that? Sometime after that, he went to see her own works, and slowly over the years, the two became closer. He writes very eloquently about how her simplified abstract vocabulary that was fundamentally related right to the textile grid had a profound influence on his work. And she writes about how ARP was key to encouraging her to create a more, I think her word in English translation from the German is unencumbered. But what she means by that is, is free art as opposed to applied art. We know that it was very hard for a woman artist to be taken seriously. This isn't to say, though, that Arp didn't try to support her. He just so cl clearly um, respected and admired her work. Um, and both before and after her, her death kind of worked rather tirelessly to promote it. So why is Sophie Teuber Arp not a household name? I think there are just so many different ways of answering that. Um, one has to do with gender discrimination. Another, I think, has to do with the nature of her practice. She was an applied arts professor. She knew how to make textiles. She could design murals. She did book editing. And for um, a long time, people who made paintings and sculptures were valued more in the, in the art history books than people like Sophie Teuber Arp, who were so polymathic. 1938, as Arp is writing sort of about the history of the Dada years, he is very intent in those texts of establishing himself and Sophie Teuber as pioneers of a new form of abstract art. He uses the word we, but it's more as though they're independent practitioners, each of them contributing to this radical new non-objective language. I think he wanted her to have a place in history. And he did his very, you know, he also, he placed her works in museums collections. Yes, he didn't want her to be forgotten. He wanted her to be a household name. Chapter six, love and resistance. My name is Teresa True Latimer, and I am a professor of visual studies at California College of the Arts. Claude Quin and Marcel Moore were daughters of bourgeois families uh, in the city of Nantes, and they met each other when they were just barely out of high school. At what point did they become lovers after they um, met? Before, like immediately. Love at first sight. Um, the artistic collaboration was sort of part of the way they played together. It was um, part of their erotic play. That's how they communicated in a certain way, and that's how they challenged each other and teased each other and kept each other honest from the very, very beginning. Photographs were part of that. Claude Cain always performed for Marcel Moore. She became um, these different selves and expanded into these different um, avatars, really. So that was her security to kind of reach out and stretch and, and, and grow and defy. In the early 20s, they, they moved to, to Paris, got involved in experimental theater. The theater companies were what we would call off-Broadway. Off Marcel Moore designed costumes and sets, and Claude Cain acted. 
they worked in Paris and, and, and ultimately moved in the same circles as the as André Breton and the Paris Surrealists and became hosts to um, gatherings that were Surrealist gatherings. They were disappointed in the, in the fractiousness, I guess, of the male Surrealist milieu. They sought but had not connected with a community of women. Around 1936, they retreated to the Isle of Jersey. They had this home there that was really quite nice on the edge of things. And they started taking pictures again and settling in happily, just having their life as a, as a couple. Um, and boom, the war erupted, and ultimately the Isle of Jersey was occupied, and it was claimed by the German forces. They just decided to, to hold their ground. And they stayed, and the population of the island was outnumbered by the, the occupying army. The Germans built a big seawall sort of fortress all around the part of the island where their house was, and they were sort of sequestered there. And at that point, they drew on their skills, their theatrical skills and their skills of creating alternative scenarios, and they, they pretended that they were an, a resistance movement, a big movement. And they generated all of these tracts that were illustrated and um, typed in German because Marcel Moore was, was uh, quite competent in that language. And they inserted the tracts in uh, places where they would be found by the foot soldiers who were occupying the island. And um, they were tracts encouraging them to desert, informing them that they were being lied to and um, appealing to their humanity. The more out there they got, the more kind of dowdily they dressed. They, they played up the sort of spinster sister number um, so that they were ab above suspicion. This went on for quite a long time, almost two years. And the Germans were trying to, to find out who was the head of this maquis that they assumed was a significant number of people. And when they were led by evidence to the door of these two aging lesbian women, they actually did not believe that it could be them. And Claude Cain was very insulted by this. And um, she said, such is the preconception of our capabilities, that they won't even recognize us as suitable for execution. They didn't get executed, but they spent maybe a little over a year in jail. They tried to kill themselves in jail because they thought they were going to be deported the island was liberated, so to speak, before they were um, sent back to the mainland and um, to the camps. M much of the artwork that they'd created together was, was destroyed by the soldiers occupying the house as it was um, considered pornographic, degenerate. We're lucky that any of it really survived that occupation. In one of her letters that they smuggled to each other in prison, in Jersey, she wrote about the quality of their love, that it was a daily consciousness, spirited, happy, stable, well-grounded, full of memories, habits of future, and always becoming. And I think that always becoming thing is really important because they created these spaces for each other to continue to become and never be pinned down, never be, never be done. My definition of love well, I would say, too, that my 
definition of love is fostering a space of freedom for the other to become everything they are capable of becoming or wanting to become. I think that's one of the reasons that it's useful to find tools to do that. The photograph, that was their tool for ritualizing that, the performance of, of that kind of love. And I, I think we find in our relationships, whether it's cooking together or traveling together along some unknown road, I think we find our ways of accompanying each other into spaces of freedom from time to time, and that's beautiful. Thank you for listening to the Magazine Podcast. This episode was produced by me, Natasha Giliberti, with Isabel Castadio, Rafael Tadros, Prudence Pfeiffer, and Leah Dickerman. Our original music was composed by Pablo Altar. Special thanks to Roxana Marcochi, Evangelos Kotsiaris, Stuart Comer, Leah Dickerman, Anne Umland, Terza True, Latimer, and Julia and Paul Fiore for sharing these love stories. You can find more episodes of the magazine podcast at moma.org magazine or wherever you listen to podcasts.